It's a blessing to be up to chapter 9 uh, today, so I'll get you to turn in your Bibles with me to chapter 9 as we look at uh, this prayer that Daniel um, brings before the Lord. It's going to be a very different sermon today than what you've been uh, used to in this series. There's no prophecy, there isn't any foretelling of the future, there isn't any historical events that we're looking at. What we are looking at today is specifically a prayer. And my, my prayer, and I get, the, I get the sneaking suspicion this morning, the devil doesn't want me to deliver this uh, particular message um, because there have been a number of obstacles in my way this morning. But my prayer is that this, this message will uh, change your heart towards the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your amazing love and uh, wonderful uh, character. You are holy beyond our understanding. You are perfect beyond degree. You are merciful to us and you continue to be patient with us, your children, as we continue to uh, sometimes stumble and fall and sometimes we uh, don't do what you've called us to. We pray for your blessing upon us this morning as we seek to learn more from your precious word. I pray that you would use me to share this message with my brethren, that it may encourage them and challenge them to live a life more perfectly for you. Father, we know our Saviour lived the only perfect life in history, and we know that we aren't perfect at this stage, but we pray with all of our might that you would grant us more grace, that we might be more perfect, that we might be more like our Saviour, that your name may be glorified in our midst, but also to this world. Father, we know that you have us here for a reason, for a purpose. And it's not to serve ourselves, nor to go chasing after the lusts and pleasures of this world. But we have been called to be ambassadors in this world. You've called us to be your lights. And we pray that we would do that more brightly in the coming days as we see the day approaching when your son will come to take us home to be with you. Bless us now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So far we have seen in the last 19 sermons um, the amazing historical detail that Daniel contains within its, in the pages um, of that book. We've seen the amazing prophecies that telling us about from the time that the Jews were taken away from uh, Jerusalem and Israel uh, in captive into Babylon all the kingdoms that would come after that, and we have seen that those prophecies fulfilled in perfect detail uh, in the history pages of our own history books, even to the point where it tells us that Christ will return one day in a, a moment in time, and he will be the king of this world. We've read also about Daniel's amazing faithfulness to the Lord in the midst of oppression and captivity, he led an exemplary life. Even being a captive in Babylon, having been carried away at a very young age, possibly around 13 years of age, maybe even younger, he carried himself with great dignity, but with amazing holiness. Daniel was an amazing statesman, serving some of the greatest and most powerful men the world has ever seen, serving them directly. Men that we would not consider holy, nor righteous, nor good from any respect. Yet he served them all the while remaining faithful to the Lord in every way. Daniel was truly a man, the Bible says, who was beloved by God. And the passage uh, Brother Rowan read for us this morning. We see when the angel Gabriel comes to uh, speak to Daniel in response to his prayer. It says in verse 23, if you have um, Daniel 9 with you. It says at the beginning, in Daniel 9, 23, at the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Not only is uh, Daniel called greatly beloved in verse 23, but another two times as well. So in 10.11 and 10.19, so three times he is called 
greatly beloved by God. It seems that God didn't only love Daniel a great deal, but it's, he was loved by the entire Trinity perfectly. Daniel's righteousness was well known. So well known that Ezekiel the prophet mentions him along with Job and Jonah as men of, and sorry, Job and Noah, sorry, as men of righteousness. Turn with me back to Daniel 9, 1. I'd like to read just the first three verses there as we start to look at this passage. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel finds himself in the first year of Darius. Darius, if you remember, was the Mede. Remember, he was working together with Cyrus and they overtook the Babylonian Empire. As we look at Daniel's life now and this particular prayer, we would do well to consider Daniel as a, a fantastic example to the born-again believer in the midst of our sin-laden world. You see, the world hasn't changed. The world is primarily the same as it was in Daniel's day. In that respect, he's a great example to us, to every believer, of how we are to conduct ourselves in this world. But you might say, oh, but Daniel was beloved. He was a special character. Daniel was so different to everyone else. And I don't match up anywhere near to the life of Daniel. I'm not that beloved, am I? No, the answer to that is no. The answer to that is you are beloved according to the word of God. And what's interesting is the great number of times the New Testament tells us that we are beloved of God. And I want to look at just a couple of examples of that. Um, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Daniel, yes, was greatly beloved, but I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that you, as a child of God, are greatly beloved of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the Thessalonians and he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, who are you beloved by? The Lord. Because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The Apostle Peter also emphasises this and he beseeches us to be living like Daniel in this world for the righteousness we see in Daniel quite literally changed the course of the history of this entire world. You might say, well, hang on a sec, I'm not going to change the history of this world. Yes, you are. You are changing the history of this world by your decisions every day. Daniel, when we look at Daniel, we see the decisions that he made and the influence that he had on people like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Cyrus by simply being faithful to God change the course of history. And that's the same for you and me. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2.11. 1 Peter chapter 2.11 because as the children of God you not only are beloved but you and I hold a very special place in this world. A place of such amazing influence that the devil does not want us to understand it. He wants, us, he wants to distract us from that very thing. That the things we do, the people we influence in this world, can actually change this world. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Dearly beloved, there you go, you are beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. That's what Daniel was. Daniel was a stranger and a pilgrim in Babylon. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation, that's your lifestyle, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. They may hate you today, 
They may disagree with where you stand on certain topics, but the things we do, the good works that we do, are meant to live on and remind them about who we are in Christ. And sometimes I hear a lot of talk, but I don't see much action. I see a lot of people saying a lot of things, arguing about a lot of points, but the works don't make any difference. People don't see a difference in the works. And if they don't see a difference in our works and in our life and in our lifestyle, what are they seeing? They'll feel justified in arguing against us. Our calling is to be Daniel's in Babylon 2021. Babylon is still alive and well. Now, when Revelation speaks about Babylon, it doesn't speak about it in, in past tense. It speaks about Babylon as being judged by God. Babylon has not finished. We are living in Babylon. And we're called to shine brightly for the Lord in this place today. And so this sermon has its focus on Daniel's heart, on his prayer, and his close relationship with the Lord. But before we look into this, notice that this prayer occurs, as I've said, in the first year of Darius the Medes' rule. Daniel is 80 years old, still working, still doing what God has called him to do. And something significant has happened to him. And it's come through the word of God. Something has hit him. Some, some realisation has come to him because he's read something in the Word of God and it's opened up his eyes to something and something hits him like, a, like we would say, a ton of bricks. Daniel didn't have the entire Bible as we have it. Obviously, he didn't have the New Testament. Didn't have all the prophets. He may have had the, the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books. Maybe he had the Psalms. Maybe he had some of the historical books about the kings of Israel. But we know he had Jeremiah, the prophet. Maybe he had some of the other prophets. But Daniel read something as he was studying the word of God. And that's another lesson for us. Daniel had only had a portion of the word of God. Maybe he only had a third of what we have today. Yet, at 80 years of age, he was still studying the word of God. He was still looking into it. And even at 80 years of age, after he probably had led one of the most faithful lives in the history of the world, was still learning new stuff. And this thing opened up his eyes to something that dramatically changed him. Because he says in Daniel 9.2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Have you ever wondered what drives a person? What happened to him? That he set his face then after he had read these things to God to seek by prayer and supplication. He started to fast. He got rid of his clothes and put on sackcloth. It's not very pleasant to actually wear sackcloth, by the way. And covers himself in ashes. That's quite, a, that's quite an impact that things had on him. What was it that he read in Jeremiah that made him react in this way? Well, let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. Let's read a portion of Jeremiah, maybe exactly the same portion that opened up his eyes, and I suspect there are other parts. Let's see what may have stirred his heart to pray in this way, having lived in Babylon for pretty much his entire life. And now, at 80 years of age, he's covering himself with ashes, putting on sackcloth and repenting before God. Jeremiah 25, verse 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah... In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, or he, this spells it Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
the which Jeremiah the prophet spake unto all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is, the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not hearkened. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Turn ye again, now every one from his evil way, and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers for ever and ever. And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And provoke me not to anger with the word, works of your hands. And I, will, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. I will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and will make them an astonishment and an hissing and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the candle. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon. And that nation saith the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations. We'll just stop there. By reading the, the words of Jeremiah in this passage and other passages, Daniel had worked out the captivity that had started under Nebuchadnezzar when he was a young child was now about to come to an end under Cyrus. Can you imagine his heart? Can you imagine he's understood that maybe in another couple of years this huge captivity that they've been under with Jerusalem being destroyed, being desolate, with the people of Israel being scattered all over the place, with he and his family and many others locked in Babylon and, live, and being forced to live under that rule there, now he was realising it was coming to an end. Can you imagine a man that from an early age, maybe of about 13, having been forced to leave his own family, watch his own city and nation being destroyed by another nation, having lived his entire life essentially in a foreign land under foreign rule who had most likely been made a eunuch when he was young. Never having a chance to have his own family or his own children. Never to be married. Yet, I don't see Daniel complaining once. I never hear Daniel moaning groaning, complaining, murmuring about his condition. He never lashes out about his circumstances and now he's 80 years old. His life's over. Life's finished. And he's about to witness the end of the captivity of his people. How did it move him? Well, it moved him to tears, I would say. What's extraordinary, though, it's not tears for himself. Not tears for his people. It's tears for God. And not for what has happened to his own people, but what they've done to God. So we see Daniel go to that familiar place. And we know that by, by this book that we've read, that his common practice was to pray three times a day out in the open in front of everyone on his balcony, I think it may have been. 
And he went to that place that he was so used to, in that quiet place before the throne of the one that he loved the most. And he prays. And so in Daniel 9, 3, he says, And I set my face unto the Lord God, to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him, and to them that keep his commandments. That Daniel comes to God, recognising who he is speaking to. He's coming before the throne of the awesome God. And because of the focus of his prayer, he's coming with a humbled heart because of sin. And he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, foregoing food as a sign of his great humility before the terrible God. Now, we don't see this type of humility today. I don't see it very often, to be honest with you. I'm not sure if I've ever seen it. I don't personally recall ever coming to God in this way. Maybe fasting, maybe intense prayer. Never put on sackcloth, never covered myself with ashes. Never did that in a way that declares my weakness, my lack of beauty, and my rightful end. Never done that. But maybe I haven't seen our sin the same way Daniel saw his people's sin. The frightful thing about our culture, and I speak this of the modern church, is the blindness that it has to God's utter holiness. It's blind. We're blind to his majesty, his power. And Daniel calls the Lord the, Lord, the great and dreadful God. Dreadful. Have you used that word for God? The dreadful one. It's not a word we often use concerning the God that we serve. Yeah, we speak of him as the loving God, and merciful and gracious and holy. And all those things are a but dreadful. You know, this is a, a God who is so holy and so high and so powerful and utterly terrifying that those who come before him in any sense, who picture him at all, who are able to grasp at all what he is like, even minutely, are filled with dread. We don't tend to have that type of view of God. We have a much lower view of God. And it's because of the culture we live in. Isaiah saw the same thing about God. Turn me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw <coughs> or had a taste of what Daniel was praying about with this dreadful God. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 says, Then, so Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. He sees the Son of God sitting on a throne with his train filling the temple in heaven. And Isaiah's response to that vision in verse 5 of Isaiah 6, he says, Then said I, Woe is me! For I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Those beautiful poetic words, aren't they beautiful? You know, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean Those They're beautifully poetic words, but they hide the utter dread and terror that is being expressed by Isaiah here in this, in this, in this one verse. Isaiah is filled with immense distress. He says, for I am undone. Literally, I'm ruined. I'm dead. He felt like he was going to die when he saw God. He thought his life was over because he got a glimpse of God. 
Why? Because he realised his own sin. In the in the the glow of God's glory, he saw how dirty he was, and he saw how dirty the people he was living with, how dirty they were as well. That their very words were sin, both his and all the people around him. All those idle words, the flippant remarks, the gossip, the slander, the complaining, the moaning, the vain and empty words that are spoken by people every day, the lack of love in, in, in speech, the selfish and hateful words, the words contrary to God's nature and law, the boastful or arrogant words that are so easily spoken. Has anything changed? No. Hasn't changed. Plenty of vain words that we speak. Just as easy for us to speak foolishness. Just, for, just as easy for us to complain and murmur. When Isaiah saw God's throne, it was all too much for him. And it was too much for Daniel. That's why he took off his, probably had quite expensive clothes, I would imagine, being a statesman in that position, serving the greatest rulers. Probably lived quite well, took off those clothes and put on sack, threw ashes on his head and came before God, realising what he was compared to God. He understood how unfaithful his people had been toward God toward this powerful but perfectly faithful God who would judge them in this way. And even though he had judged them and sent them and, and actually sent them into captivity for 70 years, he says this God is merciful. And he wisely could have destroyed them, but he didn't. And so how does he respond? Look at verse 5. He says, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Verse 6, Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. That's Isaiah 9, 5 and 6. You know it's common. You can recognise your own faults. You know, recognise your own sin and ask for forgiveness of the Lord. I'm sure you've asked for forgiveness of the Lord many times in your life, as I have. Amen. But it's altogether another level of spiritual maturity when you pray for all your brethren for forgiveness for them because you see the sin in them. And so you ask for forgiveness from God for all your brethren. And in this particular case, Daniel was perfectly innocent. Yet he counts himself as one of them. Daniel recognised himself as one of his own people. As one of his people, sorry. He didn't wash his hands of his people. He didn't disown his people and say, Lord, these bunch of fools that you've got me with over here, I wish I wasn't part of them. He didn't say that. He recognised himself as one of them doesn't wash his hands of his own people, doesn't disown them. His own people who were carried away into captivity along with him, even though he had done nothing wrong from a young age, because they had failed God over and over and over again and failed and refused to listen to his warnings, even though he had warned them many times. They were all in this mess, including Daniel, because they had simply sinned. They'd been blind to the truth. They'd betrayed the one who loved them, the God they said they believed in, yet they went ahead and said, we're going to live our own lives. We'll say we believe in you, but we want to live our own lives. And that's exactly what they did, and that's why they found themselves in that position. They rejected the words of God that he sent them through his prophets. 
And I see the same rejection of the words of God in the church today. I see a church today, if we look at our generation, I see a church today that's increasingly rejecting the word of God. It says it believes, but the works don't show. The words don't match. The life doesn't reflect the words that God has in his word, in his Bible. And if Daniel recognises the sin of his people, what about us? Who are our people? Who are your people? How do we compare with Israel? You might say, oh, we're so much better than Israel. We wouldn't do, if we were in their position, we would have done what they, what they did. That's not true. And you and I know it. Deep down, we already know it. That we're half sold to the world, the way we live our lives. We say that if we were in their position, we wouldn't have done what they did. But I doubt that. Has God's holiness diminished since those days? Not one ounce. Is his moral perfection less offended by sin than it was then? Not at all. The question I asked myself as I was preparing this sermon was, could our sins be the reason we live in the midst of a city and a nation that doesn't believe in God? Could our sins be that? Could our sins be the reason there's so much turmoil in this world? Listen to Daniel as he confesses his own people's sin and recognises God's righteousness. Daniel chapter 9 verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off, through all the countries where thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. Confusion of face. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To, we, to us belong confusion of faces. They've not understood the reason that we find ourselves in this state, or they have found themselves in that state. Regardless of whether they were a king, or a prince, or a regular man, whether you were maybe one of the few that had been left in Israel to just to look after some farms, some of the old people. Maybe you were one of the ones that was driven far away from your home, living in oppression somewhere else. Their expression is one of confusion, bewilderment and shame. Because in the presence of their enemies, where they'd been driven, they were a people in ruin, crushed, downtrodden, yet they believe in the one and only true God. They and their religion had become objects of mockery and derision by their overlords and by all foreigners. Look at these fools. They believe and they still believe and hold to this God, Jehovah. Look at them. They've been scattered all over the world. Can you imagine living for 70 years? I see Christians struggling to live under two years of lockdown. And they're falling apart. Can you imagine being in a foreign country under their rule? For 70 years, having children and multiple generations in that, in that circumstance. What are we doing here? Why are we in this particular position? Why doesn't God rise up against these enemies and defeat them for us? Why doesn't he come bursting through the clouds and destroy them? Why? Well, the answer is clear. Because of their own sin. Their own trespasses on account of their sins which stared them in the face. Burdened with consciences filled with guilt but not knowing a way out filled them with shame as a people mocked, the very people of God. 
their miserable condition, declared to all the world what sinners they had been and still were and what sins they had committed. Those sins which had ultimately brought ruin upon them and in such sad circumstances. Like I said, imagine the next generation that are born in captivity. What they would think if you're a child growing up, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old. Mum, Dad, why are, we, why are we living under oppression? Why aren't we in our own land? Why are we under such, in such turmoil here? And I wonder how much confusion of face they had in front of their children to explain. It was because of their sin that they were there. It's rare for people to recognise their state as being a consequence of their own sin and bad choices. I found in, in 15 years or so, or 16 years, maybe 17 years now of ministry, I found one of the challenges that people have in life is actually recognising the fruits of their own bad choices and their own sin. It's much more easy to blame someone else for the circumstances. It's much more easy to say it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. I was forced into that position. And so the flesh makes up excuses time after time. The flesh always wants to play the victim. The flesh never wants to be, the ego never wants to be, you know, hurt in any particular way. So people skirt around the problems they've got. They skirt around the sins in their life as if they can manage those sins and still try and be like a Christian who's, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. And they put on the face in front of everyone else. But I found in life that the majority of people don't own up to their own mistakes. They struggle to actually recognise their own sin. And if you can't recognise your own fault and your own sin, what chance have you have? What, what chance do you have to change? Christians fall into this trap along with all others that the flesh always wants to play victim. We see it played out in the media day after day after day. People take people don't take any responsibility for their decisions and they have to blame everyone else for it. And in some cases, Christians even blame God for it because they fail to recognise their own failings. But Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived, speaking to Christians, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. For he that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Yes, the Christian has to answer to this law of sowing and reaping. We reap what we sow. And if we sow sin, we will reap corruption from that sin. In fact, not only we reap corruption from our sin, but everyone else is going to reap corruption from our sin as well. Not only just us, but our families and the world. If you're sinning regularly, how well of a witness are you into this world? If your faithfulness to God hinges upon how, how convenient something is for you, what sort of a life have you shown to this world? How brightly do you think you are, you and me are actually shining into this world? What difference are they seeing in us? Is there a difference? What are we reaping to? What are, what are we actually sowing to here? Where do we spend the majority of our energies and our time and our resources and our heart and our desires? Where, are the, where is that all focused on here? Where do we spend most of our time? Focus on what? Building what? Investing in what? What are we doing? I suspect that if you were to take, you and I were to take a, a time uh, a study of ourselves, we'd find that the majority of our time is not spent on God at all. It's spent on ourselves. Investing in ourselves, in our entertainment, in our pleasure, in our lives, in our careers, in our uh, enjoyments, in our investments, in our whatever else it may be. Guess what? The whole world is doing the same thing. What makes us different? 
the Christian has to answer to the law of sowing and reaping. But praise God, he grants grace to us. Praise God for that. Because there's nothing in us that helps us to overcome this dreaded flesh that we have, that we're carrying around with us. But God grants us grace to get through. And when we repent and recognize our weaknesses and sins before him, he gives us more and more grace to overcome those things. But not if we choose to blame others. Not if we choose to pretend as if those things aren't there. We're simply left with a confused look on our face when things go wrong. And we say, why did this happen to me? I've heard that phrase, I'd say thousands of times in the last 15 years. Pastor, why did this happen to me? Or even better, what have I done to deserve this? Mm. We're simply left with a confused face. Imagine God's loss of glory when he has to discipline his own children because they disobey him in this world and cause his name to be blasphemed. Can you imagine God? Ever seen those, ever been in the supermarket and there's a lady pushing along the trolley in the, you know, in the, in the supermarket and the kids on top of the thing screaming its head off? Ever been that? Ever seen that? Oh. <laughs> and so the, 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 the mother's pushing on this trolley, the kid's screaming, trying to grab things or whatever else it is. And, and yeah, it's funny, isn't it? But if you're the mother and you have to discipline that child, how hard is it in front of everyone? So imagine God. We need to discipline us. Because we're chucking a tantrum in this world. Because when we don't obey him and we cause his name to be blasphemed because of our lifestyle, that embarrassing enough? When he has to discipline his own children, that's what he has to do with Israel. He disciplined his people. But imagine the embarrassment, the loss of glory, because he has to discipline his own children because they're causing his name to be blasphemed in the world. That would hurt. So if it hurts an, an earthly parent, if they're embarrassed by their children and they, when they have to discipline them in public, I wonder what God feels. <clears throat> Daniel now reminds himself and the Lord that he is rich in mercy and forgiveness. God is merciful and forgiving. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That this God who is all-powerful and we are not even like ants to him. We are literally microscopic specks of dust in this universe. Yet he takes an interest in us and he forgives us when we disobey and in Daniel 9, 9, it says, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. <laughs> to God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. If God's people would just humble themselves, recognize their sin, ask for forgiveness, he would extend mercy and grace to them beyond their expectations. And that's why he tells his people in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful verses I know in the Bible. If my people, who are called by my name. Does that apply to us? Yeah, that applies to us. There is no land for us, but I'll tell you what, there is, a, uh, there is land that we are called to conquer, and that's in here. And most of us have a dry wilderness in there. And we're battling a little, we're battling just to keep a small thing going. And God says, I want you to go and I want you to conquer that land. I want you to defeat every enemy and everything that you have come against you. If you think you have a Goliath in your life, I want you to overcome it by my grace. I want you to go out with confidence. God's not asking us to conquer land, Melbourne or Victoria. We are in a foreign land here. 
The most important land to God is the, is the land that you have within your life. The space between your ears. The thing within your heart. He wants perfect peace and tranquility and rule there. If God can't have our hearts, what's he going to have in this world? God wants us, if we have sin in our lives, to repent, to humble ourselves. And then he will forgive us, heal us, and he will heal our land. Which means for us as Christians, heal our heart, because our land is in heaven. That's where our land is. But Jesus says, don't you know the kingdom of God is? within you. So in Daniel 9.10, he continues his prayer of supplication and repentance on behalf of his people and he says, Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he said before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel has, has transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy, thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, and he held them true, which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. Yet may we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and hath gotten thee renowned, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. What a complete confession here. Daniel clearly acknowledges the sin of his own people. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't make excuses for them or himself. He doesn't blame others for it. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, look at those, those Babylonians, what they're forcing us to do. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar, how evil he is. Look at, look at him, Lord. His confession is for himself and for every Jew under the Mosaic Covenant. They were in an agreement with God. And do you know what? We are in an agreement with God. You and I are in the New Covenant. We are in a New Testament. Do you understand what that means today? Do you understand the agreement that we have made with God? And if you don't, I'm not going to explain to you now. Please go and find out. What agreement that you and I have made with God as his children. If you think that the Mosaic law was harsh, if you think that that was the one that was, uh, that was the, uh, the harder one to keep, think again. The New Testament, where God paid it all, is not just a free ride. We are his people. We are the bride of Christ. We are the ambassadors to this world. Do we even live like it? Do people recognize that in us? Hmm. There are many things and facets to this agreement that we have with God. We paid nothing for it, for our salvation. We didn't earn it. We still don't deserve it. He is still giving us grace after grace. But do we appreciate it? Do we understand it? Is it changing our lives? If it's not, then we have become as blind as a bat. Daniel confessed, recognised the sin of his own people under the Mosaic Covenant. They had failed God, but he had always been just with them. Look at verse 14. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. They had been in captivity for some 70 years in a foreign land. They had been decimated as a people. And here we have Daniel saying, God, you're right. You're good. You're just. 
Have you ever thought why God is making me go through this? You ever thought that? Why is God letting me go through this, through all this trouble? Well, that may be a reasonable question to ask, if it's asked in the right spirit. Whichever way God deals with us, let me just fill you in on something, it's always right. Whichever position we find ourselves in, it's always right, always correct, always just, always either merited or there for a reason. Whichever way God deals with you and me is always right. If he chooses, Job says, to take me now, he's still just. Sometimes we reap what we sow. Sometimes we're in a position because we've got ourselves there. Sometimes he wants to increase our faith by allowing us to go through something difficult. Maybe he wants to perform some miracle through us. God doesn't, God doesn't perform miracles when things are easy, normally, does he? There's got to be some obstacle in the way that he has to conquer to show us how wonderful he is. Maybe that's what's going on. Sometimes he tests our faith to show us exactly where our faith is. Maybe he's allowing you and me to go through difficult times because he wants you and me to see this is where your faith is at. So he gives us a test. You know, like you do a test at school, you learn your material, you go and do the test, and then you know at the end of it how, you're, how, you, how well you knew that subject, right? You know, sometimes God puts us to the test to see, let me show you exactly where your faith is at. And sometimes we fall flat on our faces and we fail those tests. And yet what's scary about that is that we don't realise it's a test. And we don't look at our lives and say, you know what? I failed in that area. That's something I have to focus on. What am I not believing? Why is my faith so weak in that area? We don't do that. We don't look at our test results. We just move on. We say, oh, that's the matter about that. Let's just move on to something else. God's got some, some wonderful plan for my life. huh? Yet God's teaching us the whole time. Maybe... He's allowing us to go through some suffering because there is a greater need somewhere else. Do you understand that God might let us go through suffering because something greater than our suffering needs to be accomplished? Sometimes the greatest things that have been accomplished are when Christians suffer. People get saved, lives get changed, decisions get made. And if, if God wants you and me to suffer through a particular time to change one thing, he knows what's important. He knows what's more important. So learn from those things. Sometimes, though, he's punishing us to bring us back in line. Whatever the reason, it's important that if we ask this question, you know, why am I going through this, God? Um, is that we ask it in the right way. And acknowledge that he has every right to do as he pleases with us. And whatever he does is always right. Our, the right way to respond would be, Lord, I'm going through this these suffering. Can you please open up my eyes to why I'm here? Help me to understand what you want me to do. Is there something that you need me to change? Is there some person you want me to reach? Is this something you want me to realise? What, what am I part of here? That's the right way to do it. But if you go to God and you say, what have I done to deserve this? That's not the right attitude. And you've failed the test and, and not going to learn anything from it at all. Daniel recognised clearly why he was in this position. And he didn't get angry with God. And he didn't even get angry with his own people. Let me ask you something. We've just lived through one and a half to two years of a pandemic on this earth. What if, what if this pandemic has come upon this earth as a result of the infidelity of the church? Ever thought about that one? What if God's judgment upon this earth is because of our failings? Not because of China or not because of some, some, some other uh, thing. What about, if it's, what about if it was us? 
What if our sin has caused this judgment to be visited upon the earth? Because we've been unfaithful. If that is a possibility, then the next question would be, what have we learned from it? What have the last two years actually changed in us? If this was a lesson for the church, and God's a wonderful teacher, God can teach multiple lessons at the same time to all different types of people. What have we actually learned from the last two years? If I asked you now, if I gave you all a piece of paper, and I asked you to write an essay about how the last two years have changed your life as a believer, how you've grown, how if you look at your life and your spiritual maturity and your relationship with God today, how is it different from two years ago? Would you be able to fill a page with it? What would you write? I don't mean, and I don't mean stuff like, oh, I've done more Bible reading, or I've watched more Christian things on the TV. No, no, I don't mean that sort of stuff, because anyone can do that stuff. I'm talking about how, have, how has the Word of God changed you in your decision making? How has your perspective changed? How is your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ different? Can you think about that now? How is it different from two years ago? We've just been through probably one of those most difficult times in, you know, for a very, very long time. I'm not going to say in history because I keep on saying unprecedented. I'm sick of that word, to be honest with you. Um, but how has it changed your relationship with God? Are you closer today than two years ago? Are you spiritually more mature today? Or are we more selfish today than we were two years ago? Is your trust in God deeper? Is your love for God greater? Is your walk with Him more faithful? Could you write that down? Could you record those things as you look back on the last two years? Because my fear is, over the last two years, we may not have learned much at all. What's different about my daily life from two years ago? What do I have to show for two years? Have we become more holy, more righteous, more faithful to God in our everyday lives? My hope is that you have. Daniel's hope was probably the same for his own people. And this is why he prays to God and he and he goes to him in supplication. Notice the goal of his supplication, though. Look at Daniel 9.16. He says, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. You know, I'm especially moved by these last two verses. Please listen, God. Look at the state of your people. Look at the state of your city that is called by your name and your people who are called by your name. It's not for our righteousness because we've got none. But for your righteousness sake. Because you are merciful. So he says, please forgive us for your sake. For your people and your city carry your name. Do we have this desire when we pray our prayers? Is it for his sake that we pray? Is it according to His will and for His glory that we pray our prayers? Or are our prayers completely self-centered around ourselves? Are we the center of our universe and God has to keep on feeding us to help us overcome whatever obstacles we've got, to give us whatever we don't have? 
Is it really about us or is it about him? Daniel prayed all these things for him, for God's glory. Is this how we pray? God had judged Israel greatly. But if you read Revelation chapters 1 to 3, you will understand that the Lord also judges his church. Because we are his and we now represent him in this world. Just as Israel represented him in, in, in this previous dispensation. We represent him in this world. If you think that this type of sin was only committed by Israel, please think again. The state of the church today is appalling. It's terrible. I see little remorse in people who carry the name of the Lord Jesus who have abandoned his precious word. Who are too afraid to preach the gospel. Who live lives exactly like the world. Who pollute his perfect precepts with the doctrines of devils. Where foolish talk and confusion exist in every corner. Where there's strife and bickering and hatred. Where faithfulness is seen as a hindrance to our personal advancement. Oh, if I spend too much time doing God's work or spend too much time going to church, if I'm more faithful in that area, I won't have less, I'll have less time to enjoy myself with my friends. Where people go to church because of what they can benefit from. Not because they're there to worship this dreadful God who deserves to be adored and loved and cherished because of his amazing, amazing character. I see a world, I see a church where entertainment is more important than substance. Where, where the church is a place to gain benefits rather than holiness. Where the dreams and goals of Christians are almost indistinguishable from the dreams and fears of the world. I hear much about, of his last two years, about the Lord's coming back. The Lord will be here soon. Wonderful. I pray that he comes this very moment and he takes us home to be with him. That's my hope. But if these are the last days, are we aware that the last church mentioned in the book of Revelation is Laodicea? Are we aware of that? If these are the last days and Jesus is about to come back, then the last church is the church of Laodicea. If we're living in the age of the church of Laodicea, if we're living in this last days and the church of Laodicea is alive and well in our times, are we aware of it? Can we recognise the church of Laodicea? I'm not talking about independent Baptist churches or whatever denomination. I don't care about denominations. Complete waste of time. Are we aware of which heart which church our heart belongs to. What we look like. Are we away from the church of Laodicea? Are we aware of it and keeping an arm's length from it? Or are we close to it? Or are we visiting it from time to time? Or are we even in it ourselves? This is not about church, which church you belong to. This is about what your heart belongs to. Listen to these words in Revelation 3.14 and tell, tell me they're not for today. Revelation 3.14 says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, cold nor hot. I would that they were cold or hot. <clears throat> So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, we are the richest generation in the history of this planet and not by a small margin, by a huge margin. We are so rich compared to every previous generation, we can't even count it. We are so fixated on how much money we have and what we have and, and what we don't have, 
that we actually lost the plot, I think, somewhere along the way. Are we the ones who are increased in goods, rich, and say we have need of nothing? But are we the ones that are wretched and miserable, poor and blind? Are we the ones that are so lukewarm that our works are neither here nor there? That our works, the, the works we do, we only do when they suit us. You know, if I've got some free time for God, I'll squeeze him in that. Is that the sort of people we are? Is that the way we think? You know, Daniel prayed with one thing in mind. Not for him, nor his people, but for the glory of God. He lived with that one focus in mind. And I pray that our, with all my heart that that's true for us. That we live lives that are dedicated to God's glory, not our own. Let's pray for the sins of our church. Let's pray for the sins of the church. And everyone who calls themselves Christians out there. Who are causing God's name to be mocked. I pray that we don't fail our generation completely. I pray that we don't fail the glory of God in our lives. I pray that we don't fail with the truth. But the beautiful thing about God is that there is hope. There is mercy. And there is great love and grace if we would come to Him. And this is called repentance. When we change our mind and we say, God, I agree with you. I agree with your word. I'll accept what you have for me. You know, this verse is often used, and I'll just close this verse. Revelation 3.20. People often use this verse for salvation. And it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That's for the church of the latest sins. They've locked Jesus out. I pray that we don't lock Jesus out. God bless you. Please keep in prayer. And pray fervently because the days are very short. God bless you. Thank you.